Well, hey, and welcome to the Quad City Podcast, where we are on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus everywhere, always. We're so glad you're joining us in that today. Well, before we dive into today's sermon, would you do me a quick favor? Would you go ahead and open your app store and search Quad City Christian Church? Download our app because it's the best way to stay connected with what's happening here at Quad City. If you're new, joining us for the first time, click that new here form as we'd love to reach out and connect with you. You can also submit prayer requests and even give on that same app. It's the best way to stay connected here at Quad City. Well, hey, now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our sermon from Sunday. We hope you enjoy. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are honored that you've chosen to start your week off by worshiping with us here at Quad City Christian Church. I want to welcome all of those who are joining us online from whenever and wherever you are. So grateful to have you with us today. And also want to welcome in all of those worshiping with us in Prescott Valley this morning. So honored to have you as a part of the Quad City Church family. If you're a newcomer here, we are so glad to have you. I'd love the opportunity to say hi to you out in the lobby off to the left. We have a place we call Pastor's Point. I'll be hanging out there after the service. For those in PV, you can connect with one of our pastors at Connection Central. We hope that you will do that before you head out today. Um, Before we dive in, I do want to just say it's a little crowded in here today. You might have noticed that. Uh, There is more room at the 11 and the 8. So if you're looking for a little more elbow room and like, I don't, I don't mind sitting by my wife, don't want to sit by yours. So <laughs> you can always come to the 11 or the 8. So I'd encourage you with that. Um, today, we are continuing this series that we've been in, the book of Romans. So if you're just diving in, we're in week number seven, and we've made it all the way to chapter two. So we're celebrating that today. I do want to set, before we get into this text today, I need to set a little bit more of the context for the book of Romans, for this church specifically in the book of Romans. Uh, For those of you who who were around, you may remember that we said, we believe that the church in the book, uh, I'm sorry, the church in the city of Rome began at Pentecost. You remember when the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost and Peter stands up and he preaches the first gospel message and the city is full of Jews from all over the world. And they give us a list of where they are from. And in the middle of that list, we read this, that there were in the city visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. So from Rome, they were there to celebrate Pentecost. There were Jews there, but there were also converts to Judaism, i.e. Gentiles who were worshiping as if they were Jews. So that's who was in this crowd. And we believe that they were some of the first to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, be one of the first of those 3,000 who were baptized, and then they went home. And what happened, because they were just visitors from Rome. They weren't planning on staying. They were visiting. Then they go home, and what happens? Well, they go and share the good news of Jesus. And where do they begin sharing it? With their friends and families, their loved ones, their neighbors. And a church is born from their sharing of the gospel. Now, very likely early on, 
this church had a very Jewish flavor. It began with both Jews and converts to Judaism. Likely some of the first converts in Rome came out of the synagogues. That was what Paul would always do when he'd go to, into a new city, convert the people in the synagogue, help them know your Messiah is here. And so likely early on, this church had a very Jewish flavor. But then something really significant happened in history. The, the emperor Claudius in 49 AD decides to kick all of the Jews out of Rome. So this would have been about 10 to 15 years after this church has begun. Claudius decides, no more Jews. I'm tired of having Jews in Rome. They all got to go. And this would include all of the Jewish Christians. Those who were ethnically Jew, they had to go. And they weren't gone just for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. They were kicked out of Rome for at least five years. Some scholars think it was more. So imagine the impact that this would have had on the church in Rome. This church that was founded by Jewish people with heavy Jewish influence, who no doubt was led by Jewish men and women, it's completely now made up of Gentiles. Like completely, like there's no Jews left. They have these Gentiles have no real concept of any dietary restrictions or Sabbath rules, and certainly not circumcision, because who's signing up for that? <laughs> so over the next five years, the entire culture and makeup of the church changes, and it becomes overwhelmingly a Gentile church. Then Claudius dies, and all of the Jews are allowed to come back to Rome, and all of these Jewish Christians who had left come back to their church, and now everything is different in the church that they had left. They still love and follow Jesus, but, it, but this church looks and feels nothing like it did before when the Jews were in charge. And so now, more and more as these Jewish Christians return, there is in this church a tension that begins to bubble up between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And we'll see this tension play itself out all through the rest of the book of Romans. Now, you may have noticed, again, if you've been here the last few weeks, that as we begin in chapter 2, the pronouns change. So back in chapter 1, he was preaching to they and them and they and their. But now he turns in chapter 2 and he begins with you. You, therefore, have no excuse. You think you are better? And all of a sudden, he was talking about they, them. He was talking about, in chapter 1, all of those Gentiles, those bad, evil, depraved Gentiles who do awful things out there. But now he turns to the church, and he says, what, you think you're better? And specifically, as we're going to see in our text, he's talking to the Jewish section of the church. And he looks at the Jews who are there, and he says, you think you are any better? Now, again, it's important to put this whole thing into context. There were no generational Christians in this church. Like none of the people in this Roman church grew up as Christian. They didn't have Christian parents or Christian grandparents. Nobody in this church. They are all first-generation Christians. Jesus died about 25 years before this letter is written, which means that no adult in Rome was a follower of Jesus. Like, they didn't grow up like that. They are all first-generation Christians. But there were this segment of Jewish people 
who were religious, and these Jewish people, they did grow up knowing the God of the Bible, and they did grow up with the Word of God being shared in their home, and they did grow up going to synagogue. They grew up knowing all the songs. They knew when to stand and when to sit and when to kneel. They had some verses memorized. They understood God's plan. They understood the Ten Commandments and tried to obey them somewhat. I know in this room, the overwhelming majority of us are racially and culturally Gentile. Like we're not Jewish people. But in this way, we better identify with the, with the Jewish wing of the church. Let me show you why. How many of you would say that your parents or grandparents were Christians? Raise them up. You had parents or grandparents who were Christians. Okay. How many of you would say you grew up with some exposure to church? Raise them up. Okay. How many of you grew up with a Bible in your home? Not that you ever read it, but you had it there if you did. How many of you grew up having some understanding of the rules and commands of God and on some level wanted to obey them even if it was out of fear and guilt? Okay. If, if you raised your hand, if that's your story, then you are way more like the Jewish people in the church than the Gentile people. Because the Gentile people had none of that. They had no concept of a one true God. They had no access to the word of God. They didn't even know there was such a thing. They didn't, they didn't have any idea about Adam and Eve or Abraham and Sarah. They couldn't tell you anything about David and Bathsheba and no clue what you meant when you talked about the promised land. Like they were pagans. They didn't learn any of those things until they came to faith in Jesus. Now, there may be a few of you like that, but the majority of us are in the other camp. We're in the religious side of the church. And Paul now looks at that religious side, those with those church history. He looks at those people and he's about to lay into them a little bit. And I think those of us who are in that religious side, we should probably take note of what he's about to say. And why is he about to lay into them? Because he knows, because he knows that as he has been laying out in chapter one, he's been laying out about how evil and bad and sinful those pagan Gentiles were, that they didn't know God, they weren't living up to God's standards, they were actually living in detestable ways, exchanging the truth for a lie, worshiping and giving themselves over to idols, degrading their bodies in sexual practice. The, the religious Jews on the other side of the church were saying, that's right, you get them, Paul. You tell them. Paul ends chapter one like this. You may remember, they have become, they, those evil Gentile people, they have become those pagan unbelievers. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. They are slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey the parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And as Paul is saying this, you can just hear the religious side of the room saying, amen. That's right. Preach it, brother. You let them have it. You tell them how bad they are. They are not like us. So Paul, anticipating this conversation, he turns now to the religious side of the room in chapter 2 and says, 
You, you therefore, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment, you do the same things. So he talks to the religious crowd and said, you think you're better? No, 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 you aren't better. You're sitting there passing judgment on them, but I'm telling you, you do the same thing. You think you're not greedy? You just hide it better. You may not go buy everything you want, but it doesn't make you generous. And that's what God wants. You seriously think you aren't a gossip? Are you kidding me? You just do it in prayer circles instead of around a water cooler. Like, you really think you don't slander? Are you kidding? How many likes and shares and retweets have you been given to all the slanderous articles against your political opponents? You think you, think you aren't full of sexual depravity? How many of you want your sexual thoughts, actions, and deeds displayed on this screen today? Paul says, are you kidding me? When you stand up and you're cheering on somebody else getting condemned, what you're doing in that moment is you are condemning yourself because you do the same exact things. He continues. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Like you cheer when people get condemned for that, but you're doing the same things. And we know that when God judges those who do these things, when God judges it, it's based on the truth. Like it is the right thing to do. God has every right to judge those people for what they're doing. Like it is the right thing to do. And Paul says, do you think it will be different for you? I mean, like if you're doing this, and you know it's right for God to judge this, do you think that you're going to escape the judgment? You think you're going to escape God's judgment? God can and should and rightly has the ability to condemn anyone and everyone for every sin they've ever committed. Like, immediately. Like, God has the right. It is it is based on truth if he were to send his wrath down any time and every time a person sins. Every time you has, have a lustful thought, boom. Every time you gossip, boom. Every time you sleep with someone you're not married to, boom. Every time you slander a politician you don't like, boom. Every time you lash out at your kids in anger, boom. Every time you care more about football than Jesus, boom. Every time you lie, boom. Like every sin, every time he has the right to bring down his wrath. And when I'm talking about his wrath, it's not just about taking us out of this world, like that's going to happen whether you lie or not. You will die at some point. We're not talking about that. The full punishment of the wrath of God is not this physical death in this life. It is eternal death. And God has every right to make that happen. But he doesn't. You know how I know? Because I'm still standing here. And you're still standing here. Like he, he, he has every right, but he, he doesn't bring that punishment on us like that all the time. And so for many of us, the fact that we don't feel 
the consequences of our sin, it actually emboldens us to continue in our sin. Like, well, God must be okay with us living together because nothing bad has happened. God must be okay with this drinking habit because nobody's found out yet. God must be okay with me not living generously because I'm still being blessed financially. So God must be okay with this. And as religious people, sometimes the fact that we haven't experienced the wrath of God for our sin convinces us that God is okay with it, that God's good with it, and that we have, in fact, escaped God's judgment because nothing bad has happened to me. And Paul is about to put that lie to bed. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Let me, try, let me try to illustrate this. Think about your life. You've got a starting point and it goes on and at some point it's going to drop over into eternity. But right now you're living your life. And imagine every time you sin, it's, there's a little X that pops up on the line. You just, every time. You're just sinning, you're just sinning over here all the time. And again, if God wanted to, he could bring down the lightning bolt and take you out. Like every, every time you say any of them has the ability to take you out, rightfully so, to bring down his eternal wrath on you in that moment for any sin. And he would be justified in doing so. But again, you're here, which means that he hasn't done that. We've got all these sins, but we haven't experience the wrath of God. However, he says there's going to be a day when Jesus comes back. And Jesus is going to come back, and the text in front of you calls it the day of God's wrath. Like Jesus is going to come back. And right now, there's a, a time between all of the sins that you have committed and the day that Jesus comes. And we don't know how long this is. Your scripture says right now it is God practicing forbearance. It's God's forbearance. But what you need to understand is forbearance does not equal forgiveness. He's practicing forbearance. He is operating out of kindness for you by not just taking you out. But look at what your text says. Forbearance is not forgiving you. He is being patient. There is a season right now that he's waiting between your sin and his return. And what he says is happening in that moment is if you aren't repenting of this sin, what is actually happening is you're not getting away with anything. You are not getting away with anything. In fact, you are just storing up. You are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. All of these sins that you are committed they're all being piled up for the day that Jesus comes back and you're gonna to have to answer for them then. 
Just because you're not dealing with the consequences of them right now does not mean you're getting away with anything. You are storing up wrath for yourself, according to this text. Do not mistake God's kindness for weakness. You are not getting away with anything. God is going to judge you for every sin that you have committed. And in this moment, what's the hope? What's the hope? The hope is, in the meantime, between this day and this day, that you will come to place your faith in Jesus. And then, when you come to place your faith in Jesus, all of the sin and wrath that you had stored up for yourself actually gets put back on Jesus. And all of the wrath that you rightly deserve gets moved on to the cross. He's waiting for us to repent right now. And that day of repentance will save us from the day of his wrath. But you're not getting away with anything. The judgment day is coming. He is patient with you, but not eternally so. Judgment day is coming. And what criteria will God use to judge you? What criteria? What's God going to look at when he judges you? The pagans among us will not be surprised at what I'm about to say. The religious among us may actually get offended about, uh, with what I'm about to say. What does the text say that Jesus is going to use on the day of judgment? God will repay each person according to what they have done. You're going to be judged before God based on your actions. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Those who by persistence in doing good and seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give life. So those who do good, they get eternal life. That's what he says. But for those who are self-seeking, who follow evil, they, they are, there will be wrath and anger for them. So those who are self-seeking, they get wrath. God's going to judge you based on what you have done. I know, even as I say that out loud, you're thinking, well, I don't know, that's not right. That's not right. I thought we were saved by grace through faith and not by works. Is Paul contradicting himself here? I thought the good news was that we receive a righteousness from God because we can't obtain a righteousness ourselves. I thought we were saved because of what Christ has done, not because of what I have done. And the answer to all of those is yes and amen. Yes and amen. We are saved by grace through faith. We do receive a righteousness from God because we can't obtain it on our own. We are saved by what Jesus has done and not what we have done. So why then would would Paul say that we are judged according to what we have done? Why has he connected eternal life with doing good and eternal wrath with self-seeking? Why would he connect those then? The simple answer is because how you behave reveals how you actually believe. How you behave reveals how you actually believe. 
what you actually believe. Anyone can say that they believe in Jesus, but people who actually believe in Jesus live like they believe in Jesus. Anyone can say that they fear God, but people who truly fear God live with a fear of God. Anyone can say that they love God, but people who really love God live differently than those who do not love God. Anyone can say they have faith in Jesus, but people who genuinely have faith in Jesus will live by faith in Jesus. The reality is God does not need to look at our hearts. He does not need to listen to our words to judge us. He can look at what we do. He can see it in the way that we live. Which is why every judgment scene in Scripture is always based on what you do. Every judgment scene in Scripture is always a, ba- a, a judgment of what we do. Not what we say and not what we believe. Every judgment is a judgment of what we do. Let me give you a few examples. Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. There's going to be a judgment, and it's going to be based on your conduct and your deeds. Revelation 20, this is the end, right? This is the last one. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done that was recorded in the books. When you stand before God, there's going to be a book that is open, and everything you have done recorded in the books, that will be the basis of your judgment. The sea will give up their dead that were in it, and death and Hades will give up the dead that were in them. And each person, each person was judged according to what they had done. Your actions reveal what you believe. Jesus, Matthew chapter 16, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can a What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man, Jesus says, I am going to come in my Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. These are Jesus' words. Every judgment seen in Scripture is a judgment of what you have done. Because what you do is the best indicator of what you actually believe. There's this idea in the American church that all you have to do is raise your hand and pray the prayer or go forward and get dunked at the church camp and then you will be delivered into eternity. That isn't biblical. It's just not. What you do, how you live matters. For the religious among us, I want to use some Bible words. Okay. For many of us, we look at the moment of our conversion, of when we first come to faith in Jesus. The Bible word for that is justification. It's where we stand justified before God. 
And we want to link that justification to what's going to happen when we die or when Jesus comes back, when we experience what's called glorification, where we receive an eternal body and are with the Lord forever in eternity. And we want to just say, as long as you've done this, you automatically get this. And what scripture says is, no, that's not true. That's just not true. There's an essential piece of the puzzle. There's something in the middle that you've been missing out on. And what goes in the middle is sanctification. There's this sanctification. Sanctification is just a fancy word for being transformed into the likeness of Christ. It is me becoming more like Jesus. And it happens over a lifetime of repenting and confessing of sin, of putting sin to death. It is, it, is a pictured, it is pictured in our good works that are motivated by the grace of Jesus, our obedience that comes from faith in Jesus, the good deeds that are the fruit of our faith in Jesus. And what you find in Scripture is there is no justification that doesn't lead to sanctification that will get you to, to glorification. You can't skip the middle one. You can't skip the middle one. And again, let me just give you a few texts and scriptures that help us see this today. Romans chapter 6, Paul will get into it in a couple of chapters. But now you have been set free from sin. Ooh, that's the salvation part. We love this. Justified. We have been set free from sin, been slaves to God. We are good with God. That's the justification piece. The benefit you reap from your justification is what? The benefit you reap leads to what? It's right here. You can read it out loud. What does it say? The justification leads to holiness, and the result of this holiness is the eternal life, your glorification. All three of them, your justification leads you to a holiness which gives you glorification. You don't get to skip the middle step. What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? What is it if you have a faith, a justifying faith, but that faith does not produce any actions, that does not produce any sanctification? Can that kind of justifying faith without sanctification, can a such a faith save them? What's the answer? No. A justifying faith that does not produce any kind of transformation has no power to save you. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, by sanctification, by an action that's transforming you like Jesus, that kind without action, this kind of faith is dead. Unless it's changing you, it ain't saving you. Again, we can keep going. Galatians, whoever sows to please their flesh in the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So if you come into the Spirit, what are you hoping for? You're hoping for eternal life. That's what you're hoping for. But if you're sowing to please your flesh, what are you going to get? Uh, you're going to get destruction. Your actions determine what you're going to get. So let us not become weary in doing good. We gotta keep doing good for in the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So the spirit, which gives us eternal life, has an expectation that we keep doing good. 
And when we keep doing good, then at the proper time, we will get the harvest of eternal life that we've been looking for. You don't get to skip the middle step. For the grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to all people. We love this. This, again, justification. Salvation, the grace of God, it comes and it saves me. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But that's not where this text ends. It. What does it? What's it talking about? What is it? Let's see. This is basic English. It refers to what? The grace of God. The grace of God has appeared. It brings salvation. And it, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Don't miss this. This grace that saves us that we are so excited about is the same exact grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Not in the by and by, not when you're taking the dirt nap, not someday over the rainbow, in this present age. In other words, if you do not have a grace that is doing these things, you do not have a grace that is doing these things because it is one and the same grace. It's the same grace. If you don't have a grace that's transforming you, you do not have a grace that will save you. These texts point to us over and over that there's this expectation that there is a transforming work of justification that will impact how we live. It will produce holiness and obedience and life. And here's what you need to know. We are saved by grace through faith alone, but faith never shows up alone. Faith always produces fruit, always. So don't miss this. Our obedience or our fruit is not us earning anything. It is not us working our way to heaven. It is simply the evidence of God working in us. And it's not about perfection. This is the good news. It is not about perfection. Go back to chapter two, verse seven. Those who by persistence in doing good, not in perfection of doing good. No, no, no. It's by persistence of doing good. Seek glory, honor, immortality. He will give eternal life. By persistence. You don't have to be perfect to get eternal life. You just got to be persistent. Are you waking up every day and trying to be better today, doing good again today? Are you persistently doing good? Are you persistently being transformed? Are you growing in your holiness or are you growing in your worldliness? Let me back up and remind us of the bookends of the book of Romans. What is Paul trying to accomplish throughout this whole letter? What is he trying to get for and from and to the church in Rome? Very first paragraph of the letter to the Romans, Romans 1.5. Through him, we, Paul talking about himself, we received grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to what? To the obedience that comes from faith. That's what Paul's trying to do. He says in the very first paragraph, I want to I get the Gentiles to an obedience that comes from faith, not a faith that comes from obedience. No, no, no. 
from an obedience that comes from faith. That's how he starts the letter of Romans. And look how he ends it. Last paragraph of Romans. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with, his, with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all those words lead us to this action step, so that all the Gentiles might come to the what? To the obedience that comes from faith. Last, last paragraph. The beginning, he says, what I'm trying to get for you is an obedience that comes from faith because you can't have justification to glorification without sanctification. There has to be an obedience that comes from your glorification. I'm sorry, from your justification that will lead you to your glorification in Jesus. So here's the question. Do you see that at work in your life? Paul is speaking to the religious people in the church who know God. And he says, God is going to judge every person. And he's going to judge them by what they do. It doesn't matter what their parents believed. It doesn't matter how many Bibles they own. It doesn't matter if, how many verses you memorized at Awanas or the Bible Bowls. It doesn't matter how many church services you've been to, how much money you've given to the church, how many Bible tracts you've passed out. It doesn't matter how many times you raised your hand or prayed the prayer or dunked yourself at summer camp. It doesn't matter what you say you believe unless what you believe changes how you live. How you live is your greatest evidence of what you truly believe. And then he ends this section with these words. This will take place. This judgment will take place. It's going to happen on the day when God judges people's secrets. Like you think you're getting away with it. Mama don't know. Your husband don't know. Your wife doesn't know. You think it's secret? No, it's not. It's not secret. You're, it's just being stored up for the day of wrath. And God will judge people's secrets through Jesus Christ on the day that he comes back. All of it will be put on display. We don't get to skip the transformation part. If you don't have a grace that's changing you, you don't have a grace that will save you. So let's pray for God to reveal to us where it is that we're still hiding in our shame and in our secrets so that we're not storing it up. The goal instead is to repent, to actually bring it into the light. So on the day that we come before Jesus, we don't have any secrets because we've confessed it all and we've repented of it all and there is nothing hidden anymore. In his forbearance, he is showing us kindness. But his patience is not eternal. Father God, I pray today that you would reveal to us where it is that we are living in unrepentant sin, where we are allowing it to stay secret in our life, believing that somehow we've escaped the judgment of it because we haven't experienced it yet. I pray that you'd make it a reality today in our heart that we need to expose it so that we aren't storing it up, but that 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 sin can be repented of and placed on Jesus, and he will experience the wrath on our behalf. Do that work in us through the power of your spirit today in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Amen. And thank you so much for joining us today here at the Quad City Podcast. Hey, our desire is that we would each look more and more like Jesus every day, week, month, and year. And we know that that doesn't just come from learning more about him and his word, but by actually applying it to our lives today. We hope that you take this message that you heard today and apply it to your life in a way that makes you honor him. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Be sure to download the Quad City app and we will see you again next time.